You're listening to conference coverage on ReachMD, captured on location at the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists Annual Meeting and Exhibition in National Harbor, Maryland. Your host is Mario Nasanovich. Coming to you from the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists Annual Meeting in National Harbor, Maryland, this is ReachMD. I'm Mario Nasanovich, and joining me to discuss the facts, myths, and misconceptions of medical marijuana is Zachary Pallas, MD, CMD, FACP, and Robert Aceta, a registered pharmacist. Dr. Pallas and Mr. Aceta, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you. So any opening remarks uh, before we begin about uh, the context in which we will be speaking about the facts, myths, and misperceptions of medical marijuana today? Sure. So I'm the medical director of the Hebrew Home at Riverdale in the Bronx, New York, and we started a program a little over two years ago in bringing medical cannabis or allowing our patients to participate in the New York State-designated medical cannabis program. So our experiences are primarily related to the indicated diagnoses for medical cannabis within the state of New York, and a lot of that can be extrapolated to other states as well. Yeah, Dr. Pallas and I collaborate on many projects at the Hebrew Home at Riverdale. I'm an independent consultant pharmacist, and my practice delves into this particular area. I'd like to make it clear that this is really something we've been doing in New York State, which is very uh, particular with its laws and regulations, and also we're all kind of figuring things out along the way, but being respectful of the federal regulations. Thank you so much. Let's start off with probably a very basic question for both of you with the experiences that you have, but maybe not for our listeners. What are the differences in the current strains and uh, varietals of legal medical marijuana? So medical marijuana, when we refer to medical marijuana, we're talking about the extract from the cannabis plant, and that's composed of over 100 different cannabinoids, which are referred to as phytocannabinoids, plant-based cannabinoids from the cannabis plant. The two most active cannabinoids in the cannabis plant are delta-9-THC, delta-9-tetrahydrocannabinol, and cannabidiol, or referred to often as CBD. Now, while delta-9-THC is a phytocannabinoid that has significant psychoactive properties, cannabidiol, or CBD as we refer to it, does not have any psychoactive properties. So uh, in our elderly population, we find that the use of CBD is much more effective. There are several different strains that contain varying concentrations of THC, and within the geriatric population, we favor those strains that uh, have very little THC and are primarily CBD or the CBD-dominant strains. In New York State, the state has approved the use of different products and different concentration combinations. So, yes, uh, relative to the THC and the CBD concentrations, um, they have some guidance on how these products should be formulated by the providers. And so uh, usually there's a very low concentration of THC in one product. There's a 50-50 concentration of THC with CBD, and then there's also a higher concentration of CBD to THC. So we have that variance, and again, all of the different companies that have been registered as registered organizations in New York State have to provide the uh, specifics of which products they will produce based on those concentration standards or guidelines. Tell us a little bit about the current or best and healthiest methods of consuming legal medical marijuana for the patient population that you are currently treating? So 
typically speaking, the formulations that are most common or the formulations that are approved in New York State would be either the vaporized form, the capsules, or the tincture under the tongue. As a nursing facility, we have a no-smoking policy, which would include forms similar to electronic cigarettes or vaporized forms of medical cannabis. So we're primarily using the uh, tinctures under the tongue or the capsules. In terms of what we find to be most effective tends to be the tinctures that are under the, placed under the tongue. And that's largely because it gets absorbed quicker into the bloodstream and you avoid the first pass effect of part of the med getting metabolized through the liver. So generally our patients, generally we've been recommending the tinctures under the tongue of the uh, CBD. We've had a lot of success with our nursing home residents with the tincture. As Dr. Pallas has mentioned, there are also products that the state has given uh, approval for, which include topicals such as oils or patches, transdermal patches. And there's also uh, an opportunity for a plant-based product, which is a crushed version of that plant. But again, in our setting, we have found to be cognizant of the regulations regarding uh, controlled substances and so forth, we prefer to use those dosage forms in our setting that Dr. Pallas has outlined. So let's talk a little bit about the current pros and cons of medical marijuana tinctures, and do you currently use any of the sublingual sprays as well? So we're using the sublingual sprays as well as the sublingual tincture, and we find that for the most part patients are tolerating that very well. Some complain about a little bit of a bitter taste to it, but that's not really much of a major issue. In terms of your experience with the transdermal patches or the topicals or potentially even some of your patients ingesting uh, some of the the crushed or raw plant, can you tell us a little bit about the the pros and cons and experience with that? So presently in our practice um, in the New York State, the edible products are not legal, and so therefore we would not uh, be involved with the edible products. As far as the topical products, again, the uh, health department has given permission to use those products. We, we particularly have not chosen to recommend that the patient use those products. However, anecdotally, I know that there are products available for purchase uh, through, let's say, alternate sources such as the net, and um, some residents have kind of pulled me to the side who are participating in the program, kind of giving me the wink and said, hey, look at this one. This one seems to be helping. It's a, a cream. I've been putting it on my, my wrist, and it's, it's really great. So essentially, we're kind of sticking to that process and the formulary that we've developed from the get-go. Shifting gears a a little bit away from uh, current practice with these older patients uh, in the long-term care setting, can you tell us a little bit more broadly about some of the more common uh, myths and misperceptions about medical marijuana, its use in long-term care facilities, or its use in general? Sure. I think many people associate medical marijuana with recreational marijuana, and as such, the older generation tends to shy away from it. I think there's a very significant stigma associated with medical marijuana, and it's very important now more than ever that physicians should be educated on what medical marijuana is and what it isn't, uh, because patients need to understand that. And in order to dispel the myths, we need to be able to educate our patients on what medical marijuana is. And essentially, medical marijuana is the use of the cannabis plant for therapeutic purposes. It has been used for the last three to 4,000 years. It has been documented to have been used uh, in ancient Greece, in China, and throughout Asia. And what's 
fascinating to me is that the very same indications for which it has been documented to have extreme efficacy over the millennia are the very indications for which we're recommending it today, such as spasticity, relief of pain, relief of nausea, uh, relief of stiffness. Uh, these are the, the very same indications. The anti-inflammatory effect of cannabis has been documented over centuries. And these are the very same indications for which we are recommending it. So that while we may not have as many robust clinically controlled trials as many of the other pharmaceutical agents, we need to reframe how we think about medical cannabis and view it more as a therapeutic modality. Yeah, also I, I think to Dr. Pallas's point, we really need to have the medical profession embrace this as an alternate form of palliative therapy and appropriate therapy, and especially in cases where patients or residents are, you know, using uh, medications that we know are toxic medications, you know, and obviously the number one concern nowadays, I believe, would be the opioid crisis and how, you know, this particular therapy, therapeutic regimen might be an alternate to help wean people off and uh, de-prescribe opioids. Really, there is a lot of uh, literature coming aboard that has shown this is a viable option. New York State actually just recently added a couple of approved indications. One of them was opioid for any type of opioid use, essentially. So it's really a, a useful tool for practitioners to have available and to consider. You know, and another myth that one needs to dispel is the, the concept of the use of CBD cannabidiol, while it's very effective as an anti-inflammatory and, and very effective as an anti-spasmodic and, and certainly as an analgesic, uh, it is not habit-forming. Uh, it is not, because it is not psychoactive, there's no concern with the use of CBD that a patient will become addicted to it. So that, uh, that's, I think that's one of the major stigmas associated with medical marijuana use. You know, will I become addicted to it? For those of you just joining us on this program, this is Mario Nasinovich on ReachMD. I'm speaking today with Dr. Zachary Pallas and Mr. Robert Aceta, a registered pharmacist, about the facts, myths, and misperceptions of medical marijuana. We spoke a bit earlier about some of the basics of legal medical cannabis and explored together some of the myths and misperceptions. But now let's shift over to some more of the practice-specific, legal, and more practical concerns. Mr. Seta, can you discuss the process for implementing medical marijuana into a practice setting? Well, for our setting, especially in the long-term care facility, before you can do anything, you really have to have buy-in by the leadership team of the facility. So it really starts at the top. For instance, at the Hebrew Home in Riverdale, our executive team... Our chief executive officer, Mr. Dan Reingold, was really the initiative for us to get involved with the program once New York State had given the go-ahead to provide this type of care for residents. And, you know, starting with the leadership there and filtering down through the uh, decision makers, people such as the chief operating officers and chief information officers, in, in our setting, of course, it would involve nursing, so uh, to be aware, a pharmacist consultant also to be involved as far as preparing the facility for any regulatory concerns. All of us together sit at a table and we all hash out the details, no pun intended, and we come up with the solution for our particular need. And so that goes back to what I kind of mentioned earlier in the interview, which is there's no one right way to do it. It's kind of 
everybody's uh, decision-making process to get the, the project rolling and then to proceed with it. As medical cannabis is uh, still considered a Schedule One here in the U.S., what, what can doctors and pharmacists do currently? So, again, the concern has the federal regula- regulation which lists marijuana as a Schedule One product, and because it's in a Schedule One, people are very concerned about having anything to do with it. And so, again, New York State allows uh, residents of New York State to participate in using the product. So as such, we in a facility will respect the law that is it is a Schedule One substance. And we've, uh, again, crafted policies and procedures that allow residents to participate in the program. And we essentially have mirrored whatever concerns we have for safety, security, and so on, based upon the regulations for storage of controlled substances from Schedule 2 to 5 in New York State, which is really all the controlled substances. We spoke earlier about some drug-to-drug interactions. What are you most concerned about, uh, specifically in your setting, with these older patients? Well, I can talk to the concern about adding on a product and having residents, and usually most nursing home residents, can be on up to nine medications. And so we're really ripe for all types of adverse effects and side effects from adding on any product, uh, excluding the fact that this is a cannabis product. So, yeah, the number one concern would be anything to do with the risk for hypotension or hypertension, which might also then cause the adverse effect of increasing the risk of falls. Sedation can be possible, although we, again, try to avoid using any of the products that cause sedation. I mean, Dr. Pallas would like probably give you a little more insight into some of this uh, cases that he's handled recently. Yeah, my concern with the formulations that have higher concentrations of THC are the effects on cognition in the elderly, as well as impaired balance, impaired gait, and increased risk for falls, which is always a major concern with any medication in the elderly. Shifting gears, we've spoken quite a bit about the differences between New York State and and, and certainly existing laws across the nation. Any additional uh, thoughts uh, that you'd like to share or pearls regarding mitigation regarding these programs? Yeah, so in the nursing facility, really, uh, we train our nursing staff from the point of entry into the facility building all the way through to the administration of a medication to a, a resident patient to have very strict processes in place for uh, the chain of custody, if you will, of a drug. So if you're thinking of a scheduled drug, that's not a cannabis product. And so essentially with these products, because of the concern about handling a product that is Schedule One federally, we do not have the nursing staff involved in handling the product. Essentially, it's the private property of the resident, and we do provide a storage solution, which is a double-locked container, which kind of mirrors our practice what we do with the regular scheduled control drugs. So I think, again, it's just kind of using your best practices for any type of mitigation prevention, and we've been very successful in that regard. So we talked a little bit about uh, the drug security and uh, certainly the storage and this being the personal property of the residents. Any thoughts about uh, residents' rights in the skilled nursing facilities and potential diversion and acquisition? Occasionally, uh, the issue that arises would be a person may wish to participate in a program, uh, and I think this speaks to the availability of use of uh, medical cannabis. The medical cannabis, again, because it's a Schedule One substance, would not be covered under any insurance program. And so this might, may become a barrier for someone who could benefit from the cannabis product. So that's one concern. Another concern might be that 
a family member or a resident may wish to participate with the with the program and there may be some again resistance on the part of a family member or some reluctance to participate so this is again part of our concern is uh, bringing down those barriers so that people may participate in the program. When we think about the perfect case scenario of a medical director and a pharmacist, consulted pharmacist in the case of a long-term care facility working collaboratively, this may be a best-case scenario uh, that we're seeing here from New York State. Given your experiences over the last several years together, how do you recommend medical personnel and pharmacists should be working collaboratively together to help residents access medical marijuana? So I would say that it's most important to always put the patient into focus and put the patient in the center of the equation and we have to look at what's best for the patient. Obviously concerns are always related to polypharmacy and trying to find the lowest effective dose for a patient and trying to avoid polypharmacy, trying to find one medication that will address all the concerns uh, that's as clean as possible from a side effect profile. Medical cannabis is one of those treatment modalities which from the perspective of a side effect profile uh, really has minimal side effects, you know, minimal drug-drug interactions, and should be considered in the clinician's armamentarium of treatment options for patients who need symptom management, complaining of severe pain, spasticity, and inflammation, and are looking for another option. And this is something which patients should feel comfortable talking to their physicians about, and physicians and pharmacists should be educated on the topic and be able to collaborate meaningfully in simplifying medication regimens for patients. I think all of those points are, are, you know, excellent. And I would add for, you know, the consultant pharmacist role that the education component can't be stated enough because we have to provide education. Obviously, the Internet has a lot of available information. However, we have to narrow it down to provide both clinical and practical information to facilities and to staff, and we have to help dispel the myths that uh, we should never touch this product, and we should also you know, work very closely with the powers at the facility, the clinical practice guidelines for pain management, and our medical team will really help us uh, move forward with this newest innovative product that's available to help residents in need. I think that's a great way to round out our uh, discussion on this very fascinating and sometimes very misunderstood and incredibly complex subject. I want to thank my guests, uh, Dr. Zachary Pallas and Mr. Robert Aceta, for joining me to discuss the facts, the myths, and misconceptions of medical marijuana. Dr. Pallas and Mr. Aceta, it was great having you on the program. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting us. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm Mario Nasinovich. To access this episode and others about legal medical cannabis, visit ReachMD.com, where you can be part of the knowledge. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to conference coverage on ReachMD. For more highlights from this and other meetings around the world, visit ReachMD.com. ReachMD, be part of the knowledge.